Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. In this 91st episode of The Art of Range, I'm going to read an essay rather than reproduce a recorded interview. This is an essay by Nathan Sayre of UC Berkeley that was delivered as a lecture to a meeting of the Rangelands Partnership in 2005. This is a group of extension range specialists and agricultural librarians who work together to make range science accessible to people who need it. The talk was titled, Prospects and Tools for Sustainable Ranching in the Western United States. I am reading this with Nathan's permission. The essay is not, to my knowledge or his, published, but I believe it has value for a broader audience than the original one. I'll begin quoting the article now. The latest conservation biology contains a forum on the subject of sustainability. The first piece provokes the others by arguing that the term is too vague, outdated, and unpalatable to serve as an effective basis for the conservation movement now. The authors propose substituting land health for sustainability. Several of the responses concur with parts of the analysis, but dispute the conclusion that some other term is needed or that land health is any better. Certainly, sustainability in an abstract sense, is hopelessly vague. Taken alone, it can only be defined tautologically. That which is sustainable persists, while that which is unsustainable does not. The longer something has been around, presumably, the more sustainable it must be. This not only lacks content, it also limits us to viewing sustainability retrospectively, when the point usually is to try to anticipate or plan for the future. Something that has persisted may nonetheless vanish in the future. Sustainability becomes meaningful, though, when its referent is more carefully specified. What exactly is being evaluated as to its sustainability or lack thereof? What are we trying to sustain? Over what time periods? What are the processes that sustain it, and how do those processes interact? I want to try to answer these questions in relation to ranching in the Western U.S. I believe that Western ranching is both more sustainable than is often assumed, and yet highly vulnerable to current trends and forces. The threats it faces are more social than ecological, and the tools for sustaining ranching must therefore be primarily social in nature. Sorting out the ecological from the social can be difficult. Ranching has been around longer than most of the livelihoods and land uses that we presently have in the West, such as suburban development and tourism. It has outlasted beaver trapping and bison hunting. Beaver and bison look like cases where an activity was ecologically unsustainable. But in truth, it was not the activities per se that were unsustainable, but the way they were practiced in the 19th century which can be traced to economic forces and property relations rather than ecology. They might have been sustainable had they been done differently. Instead, they exceeded the thresholds of resilience in the ecological systems they exploited, and beyond those thresholds, there was no way they could persist. As practiced in the 19th century, 
Ranching also was unsustainable, again for reasons that were as much economic as ecological. But the excesses of the cattle boom did not permanently render ranching impossible. The ecological conditions for it were altered and weakened, but not destroyed. The way it is practiced today is radically different from the way it was practiced then, even if we call it by the same name. Ranching has persisted by changing, and this forces us to specify further just what we're concerned to sustain. Jim Corbett, who authored the original agenda for the Malpai Borderlands Group, defined the goal as, quote, the health and unreduced diversity of the native biotic community, end quote. He pointed out that ranching is now the only livelihood that is based on human adaptation to wild biotic communities. It is this interdependence of livelihood and landscape that is critical. Both are dynamic, but neither can persist without the other under current social and economic conditions. It is often claimed that ranching is not sustainable in the ecological sense, and sometimes its economic decline is construed as evidence of this. Yet from an ecological perspective, Range livestock production is probably the most sustainable part of our nation's beef industry and more sustainable than most of our agriculture. When grass grows by itself, without plowing or fertilizer or pesticides or irrigation, and livestock eat the grass and grow and reproduce, and humans harvest the livestock for food, what could be closer to the evolutionary trajectories of grasses, domesticated stock, and people than that? Any agriculture that does not require fossil fuel inputs is today remarkably sustainable. Of course, ranching has not always stayed within the bounds defined by this simple model, and damage has been done. My point is simply that ranching can be ecologically sustainable in ways that modern feedlot fattening and modern corn production cannot. It is sustainable, provided that resilience thresholds are not exceeded provided, for example, that the grass recovers from being grazed. I'll return to this later. The threats to ranching today are not fundamentally ecological ones. The forces that appear set to end it, to declare its unsustainability in practice, are economic and political in nature. Once upon a time in rural studies, writes William Reebsom Travis, population increases meant only one thing a growing farm, ranch, timber, or mining economy. Now we find those economies dying, yet all but a handful of rural counties in the West are growing. Indeed, on average, they're growing faster than metro counties. End quote. According to government statistics, about one million acres per year have gone out of livestock production in the eight intermountain states for the past 40 years. This gentrifying range, Reebsom Travis notes, is tough to figure out. Tough as to its present complexion, yes, but not as to its underlying historical and economic causes. Our system of administering, managing, and valuing western rangelands is 100 years old this year. This was 2005. It was formulated by Teddy Roosevelt's Public Lands Commission, whose 1905 report led directly to the creation of the USDA Forest Service and its system of grazing permits. The commission had three members, Gifford Pinchot, 
the first head of the Forest Service, Frederick Newell, the first commissioner of the Reclamation Service, and W.A. Richards, commissioner of the General Land Office. They based their recommendations in part on the system of leasing that Texas had adopted for its state lands beginning in 1883. A similar system was prescribed for Arizona and New Mexico state lands in their enabling acts in 1910. Later, under the Taylor Grazing Act of 1934 and the Bureau of Land Management, the same basic system was extended to the remaining federal lands in the West. Call this system the Western Range, capital W, capital R. It has persisted for a century, and it is deeply ingrained in our laws, ideas, and values of Western Rangelands as well as in the management practices of ranchers and land management agencies. It was built, however, on a foundation that can no longer sustain it. The mandate of the Public Lands Commission said nothing about ranching. Its assigned goal, rather, was settlement. Quote, To recommend such changes in land laws as are needed to affect the largest practical disposition of the public lands to actual settlers who will build permanent homes upon them. End quote. Sustainable settlement, so to speak. Ranching became the focus of their report by default. Quote, the great bulk of the vacant public lands throughout the West are unsuitable for cultivation under the present known conditions of agriculture and so located that they cannot be reclaimed by irrigation. They are, and probably always must be, of chief value for grazing. End quote. Everything else about the Western Range flowed from this premise prediction. The goal was settlement, and grazing was the only means of achieving it, at the time, certainly, and as far as they could foresee into the future. And it is this premise that is now false. The highest value of private Western Rangelands is not grazing, but real estate development and for federal lands, it is recreation. The Western Range assumed that with no prospect of land use change, ranchers would have every incentive to steward their private and leased range lands for long-term forage productivity. This would align private and public interests, just as leases tied together public and private lands. The more secure their leasehold, the stronger the incentive. The option of development unties these bonds, in theory at least. If you plan to sell out, and if developers plan to blade home sites and roads anyway, what difference does it make if you degrade the range in the meantime? Fortunately, most ranchers don't think this way to begin with. If profit were their only goal, they would not still be in ranching. If society's goal were still simply to settle the West with permanent homes, there would be no need to talk about ranching at all. This is indeed where we appear to be headed. It is as though maximum settlement were still our goal, and we've found a new and better way to do it, one for which ranching is largely irrelevant. In Rebsom Travis's terms, the New West consists of city sprawls, which are predominantly suburban in character, surrounded by an exurban sphere, which gives way to the gentrifying range. Big blocks of federal commons comprise about half the land, and resort zones dot the region, 
often located within or near the most spectacular of the federal commons. In this new West, ranching appears relictual, an artifact left over from an earlier period. Ranching is economically irrational, at least until you sell the place out of ranching. Ranch owners, whatever their skills, values, or motivations, are holding lands whose market value already stipulates land, land use change sooner or later. No wonder they defend their property rights so strenuously. If ranching no longer appears sustainable, it is because the premise on which the Western Range was built is no longer valid. Many rangelands have degraded, becoming less productive for livestock production, and the minimum size of a viable ranch operation has steadily increased over the past hundred years. But even if the land had not changed, the price of land today would still exceed what livestock alone could justify from a simple economic point of view. According to Alan Terrell's recent research, to take one example, ranch prices in New Mexico are about six times their agricultural value. Once upon a time, these lands did support more than six times the current number of stock, but that was precisely what made 19th century ranching unsustainable. What we're watching, what ranchers are living through, is the messy playing out of this contradiction between an inherited set of rules, values, and practices on the one hand, and a fundamentally changed political economic landscape on the other. Market forces are in the process of developing the half of the West that is private land, and some environmentalists are prepared to trade that for the end of grazing on the half that is publicly owned. The battles between ranchers and environmentalists over public lands have abetted the conversion of private lands, if only by distracting attention from it. The Western Range is now like a leaking lifeboat. A major problem, but one we cannot simply abandon. By linking public and private lands together, economically and administratively, it has helped prevent the conversion of hundreds of millions of acres of land to more intensive uses. It has kept the West less fragmented and closer to its native vegetation than any other part of the continental United States. But to, man to maintain these legacies and to sustain ranching rather than simply settlement, we have to develop an alternative set of rules, values, and practices and somehow graft them onto the Western Range or incrementally put them in its place. We have to rebuild the ship while continuing to sail in it. This process has already begun at countless locations across the West. People are working diligently to craft new rules, to articulate new values, and to implement new practices that are adequate to the new landscape. I expect everyone is familiar with at least one such effort. I know a handful of them well, and a couple of dozen in less detail. These efforts seem always to be local, grassroots affairs, concerned with a watershed, a valley, or a similar-sized landscape. Perhaps this is because reform of the Western Range as a whole is hostage to federal-level political stalemates, or perhaps because no single solution will work across such a diverse region only practices tailored to particular circumstances of ecology, economics, politics, and personalities can possibly succeed. I think both are true, and together they explain a common feature of all the efforts I'm aware of. 
the central importance of private landowners, and particularly ranchers. Federal agencies cannot lead such efforts precisely because they are federal agencies. They can help or hinder them, but they cannot lead them. What are the tools available today to sustain ranching? What are the pieces with which to rebuild the ship? Judging from the efforts underway, I would mention the following. Money. This is, of course, a tool for almost any purpose, but its role in the ranching situation is unusual. A lack of money, after all, is what most often triggers land-use conversion. A ranch gets too far into debt, or inheritance issues force its sale, or the temptation to cash out to development becomes too strong. In general, once a ranch has been capitalized at residential real estate prices, it is effectively too late to prevent it from subdividing sooner or later. But this just highlights the extent to which ranch owners have resisted the economic rationality of today's landscape. 50% of public lands ranches, according to the massive recent study by Gentner and Tanaka, are supported by outside income or wealth. This is not a new phenomenon. 33 years ago, Arthur Smith and William Martin found that 80% of Arizona ranchers, in a random sample of 89, had outside jobs or income to help support their ranches. Access to non-ranch jobs, they suggested, might be the key to keeping ranching alive. If one were to measure these private subsidies and add them to the opportunity costs of not subdividing, one might well find that ranchers subsidize ranching to a much larger extent than do federal and state grazing and tax policies. Some conservation non-governmental organizations talk of the need for ranchers to diversify their income sources. The fact is that most already have. The money that is sustaining ranching today is private money. Can it continue to do so for much longer? Maybe. But the costs of entry as land values rise make ranching ever more exclusively the domain of those who inherit a ranch or those who bring large quantities of capital into it from other pursuits. How long these two categories of people will hold out is impossible to say. And without the former, the latter look less and less like the ranchers we thought we were concerned to sustain. The outside capital keeps ranchers afloat at the cost, generally, of continuing to raise the value of ranches. There is a need to supplement these sources of money in ways that reduce the cost of entry. Conservation easements. When conservation easements are exchanged for cash, they can help a rancher weather a period of poor returns or expand its land base. More fundamentally, easements can re-establish the validity of the assumption built into the Western Range. In theory, at least, an easement that prohibits development forces the market to value the ranch on the basis of its agricultural productivity. There is not nearly as much money available for easements as there should be. From a simple fiscal perspective, easements are an amazing bargain for the public. Ex-urban development is almost always a money-losing proposition for counties and municipalities, and any long-term certainty about land use makes planning more efficient and effective. The ecological benefits of unfragmented land are perhaps even more valuable 
but they needn't even figure into the equation for easements to make good public sense. Owning and managing land well is expensive. Even if public agencies could do it, it would cost a lot more than letting private parties do it instead. People. The idea of sustainable ranching does not have many opponents, except among those who consider it a contradiction in terms. The challenge lies in making it happen, and the most powerful tool for this is people. Ranchers are accustomed to cooperating with each other, as neighbors, for example, and they are remarkably good at voicing their collective will in conventional political situations. There is plenty of anecdotal evidence and some scholarly evidence that ranching landscapes persist where ranchers collectively believe they all can and will persist together. In the New West, however, it seems increasingly clear that non-ranchers must also be part of the collective effort to sustain ranching. Agency personnel need to be involved, whether as lessors of grazing lands or as regulators of wildlife, water, fire, or some other resource. NGOs are important potential partners for their resources, expertise, connections, and reputations. Scientists are critical because their work can resolve or at least moderate tensions between other parties. And the general public needs to be involved, or at least they need to feel welcome to get involved if they wish. For all of these non-rancher groups, the quality of personal interactions is extraordinarily important. People will not work together if they do not feel some personal fulfillment in it. This requires both that collective efforts yield some positive results, however modest, and that a sense of trust and enthusiasm develop over time. Collaboration does not work because people tell themselves it's a good idea. Some formal common ground is not sufficient by itself. It works when they enjoy the actual activities of working together and feel rewarded in it. Knowledge One of the reasons collaboration is needed is that so many more kinds of knowledge are needed than was previously the case. Look at successful efforts to sustain ranching, and you'll find people with expert knowledge in business and law, real estate and wildlife, water, endangered species, fire, marketing, communications, nonprofit administration, fundraising, and so on. How to access such expertise efficiently, when you need it, for as long as you need it, but no longer, is a major challenge. Less obvious, but as important, is the experiential knowledge of ranchers themselves. For various reasons, this knowledge has rarely been written down. Look at the scholarly literature, and it appears we know more about the ecological knowledge of African and Asian pastoral groups, some of whom scarcely exist anymore, than we do of American ranchers. Judging from ranchers I've interviewed, their knowledge is tightly linked to the lands they have managed. Many are convinced that what they've learned may have no relevance anywhere else. Even if they're right about that, there is a need to document ranchers' experiential knowledge, both to help non-ranchers understand that ranching is a complex art, and to help researchers troubleshoot their models and identify patterns of practical significance. There is also a need for new knowledge generated by scientific research. 
Our hyper-specialized academy has produced a lot of knowledge about discrete subjects, but much less about interactions among multiple subjects. We know a lot about fire, and a lot about some endangered species, but we know very little about fire effects on endangered species. We know a lot about grazing effects on vegetation, but surprisingly little about the interactive effects of grazing and fire, or grazing and climate. Our knowledge base regarding rural residential development is paltry compared to the extent of that land use. Because of the cattle boom's notorious destructiveness, almost every endangered species listing includes grazing as a, quote, cause of decline in the species, end quote. Even where such a link can be firmly established for the cattle boom, however, the issue of current impacts may be far from certain. Put these last two, last two tools together, people with diverse knowledges working together, and sustainable ranching becomes much more likely. Creative solutions to management conflicts can be identified and tried, provided there's a general sense of good faith about it, faith that we will learn from the effort and that results will be incorporated into further innovations. Research can be done that spans specializations and addresses pressing management issues in a timely fashion. Flexibility. The Western Range contained another critical flaw, one that has more to do with ecology. It demanded too much uniformity over both space and time. Spatially, it sought a single framework for the entire West to match the scale of federal land management agencies. Temporally, it sought uniformity in stocking rates, or carrying capacities, for each allotment, each ranch, year after year. Generally, those rates proved to be too high during droughts, and arguably unnecessarily restrictive during wet years. This was a perfect recipe for a chronic struggle between lessees and agencies. It also meant that grasses did not recover from grazing during droughts, and that sometimes thresholds of resilience were crossed. I believe that documenting ranchers' knowledge would uncover countless examples of ranchers learning the importance of flexibility the hard way. Some, for example, have learned to make their stocking decisions after the grass has grown, instead of beforehand, and to adjust their herd sizes accordingly. The monitoring method of animal days per acre is a good example of a tool that facilitates flexibility by allowing repeated rapid assessments of forage supply and continuous incremental improvement in accuracy. Flexibility must also extend to the social processes of ranching. The flexibility, for example, to work with a variety of people, including people who are different or unfamiliar, in order to try things that are new or unusual. Range ecologists increasingly recognize that man management needs to be opportunistic, because certain treatments or practices may be effective only if implemented under particular fleeting circumstances. This cannot happen unless the various parties involved, ranchers, agencies, scientists, environmentalists, are organized and prepared to act quickly. The ecological diversity of western rangelands will require a greater social diversity and flexibility than has been the norm in the past. Fire. Altered fire regimes have been a critical factor in long-term degradation of many rangelands over the past century. 
Because the Western Range was implemented first and foremost through the Forest Service, grazing management became a tool for fire suppression in practice, if not necessarily in policy. It was during droughts that fires were most likely to occur, and grasses provided the fine fuels necessary for small fires to grow into large ones. Simply by allowing grazing to continue at officially permitted levels during droughts, forest officials could reduce fine fuel loads across enormous areas. Aldo Leopold recognized this pattern and its ecological flaws as early as 1924. Today, there is virtual consensus that restoring fire to these lands is necessary, if not sufficient, for conservation. Yet the presumption remains, in policies, in agency culture, and in public sentiment, that fires must be put out. As more and more houses are built in remote or previously remote settings, the life and property risks associated with fire rise exponentially. But fire is inevitable in drought-prone, semi-arid landscapes. The longer we suppress them, the more devastating they're likely to be when they ultimately return. Allowing them to burn with some regularity, once every 5 to 15 years, say, actually reduces the risk of catastrophic damage. This should be the norm across much of the West, not the exception, as it is now, limited to a few wilderness areas and national parks. Ranchers and the Nature Conservancy are, from my research in the Southwest, almost the only parties actively and persistently working to make this vision a reality. It will not happen on the scale that is needed without a complete reversal in the habits, assumptions, and practices of the public at large. The prospects for sustainable ranching in the 21st century West will vary widely depending on local circumstances, regional trends, and national policies. Perhaps the most difficult question is one of scale. Can ranching survive on isolated patches of land, particular watersheds or valleys, the scale at which local groups can craft new social conditions for it, while the surrounding landscape fragments and develops? Is Western ranching dependent on a single lifeboat, or are there many, some of which may sink without endangering the others? Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Mm-hmm.